This is Tom Lee, the Editor-in-Chief for NEGM Catalyst, and we're talking today with Lord Era Darcy, uh, a surgeon and a professor uh, and a leader of many important healthcare initiatives, but we're talking to him today because he was the leader of the London Stroke Initiative, which is now a decade into its implementation, and I think it's one of the great stories in healthcare. If we had a drug that led to a 25% decrease in mortality for a, a common serious problem like stroke and a 6% decrease in cost, I think it's safe to say that the manufacturer of that drug would be incredibly wealthy and there would be television ads everywhere. Uh, and that is my understanding of what the London Stroke Initiative did. Not through drugs, though. They did it through the creation of social capital. Uh, is that perception correct, Lord Darcy? It is, uh, it is correct. It, it wouldn't have happened, though, without the value-creating technologies that were with us in terms of imaging, in terms of the availability of TPA to dissolve a clot in embolic strokes. So although the technologies were there, you couldn't have achieved or at least created the value, the health value from a patient's perspective without the actual fact doing a major change in the way we deliver service. But the huge change that you did in London that very few other cities in the world have done, even a decade later, is you concentrated patients in a minority of the hospitals when they're having their acute strokes. And that, uh, that must have been incredibly difficult, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, but uh, that concentration of patients enabled uh, healthcare providers to take advantage of those wonderful advances. Absolutely. And, and, and that, may I just say how I ended up doing the piece for London? I mean, I was asked by a very senior uh, leader in the NHS to take on this review. Although London, to take the cynical view, London has had a major review of its health system probably once every decade, and very few of these reports have really translated to a major change that is palpable by either the patients or those who provide the service, in other words, the clinicians, the docs and nurses, and so on and so forth. I took it on based on my own personal frustrations in being a, an individual who championed medtech technologies, but always found it very challenging despite the, the amazing evidence in terms of the technologies that I was using in my own surgical practice. The issue of diffusion of that innovation remained a major obstacle. And the obstacle usually was the pathway, or at least the design of the pathway of care in that patient. So when I took it on, the we looked at the different pathways of care from the cradle to the grave because the NHS being a universal health system, we are looking after an individual just born up to the end of life. So we had about seven pathways of care and one of which was acute care. So we looked at what are the major areas in the acute pathway of care that we can actually transform based on the technologies that we have back in 2006 and, uh, and improving the quality and the outcome of care, but at the same time, the cost of that care. And if you put these different variables together, 
we I looked at the 32, there were 32 hospitals, we call them providers, in London, serving a population of about 6.8, 7 million, depends who you ask, because there will be a number who won't be counted in that consensus. And the 32 hospitals were delivering stroke services. And if you went then on a deep dive in each one of these hospitals, in actual fact, with the exception of one, none of them were meeting the international gold standards in stroke care delivery. So in each one of them, there was something missing in that pathway of care, whether it was a referral, access by an ambulance, how long did the patient wait for a, the imaging, uh, how quickly the intervention happened. So, and I did that, by the way, with number of, a large number of leaders in London. These are clinical leaders. Some of them had a stroke interest, some of them didn't. So it was for them to look at the evidence. It was for them to measure the standards delivered against that evidence. And it was for them to decide working in partnership. There was a huge amount of engagement of the public and the patients, Londoners. I had about 100 Londoners with me throughout this whole journey. So they were present in the room. And that discourse between the clinicians and the patients and the public came to the conclusion that if you look at the population of London, we actually need no more than six comprehensive stroke centers, not 32, and we should look at the, uh, to come up with a strategy that will concentrate the provision of these services in these six comprehensive centers. The trick that I used at the time, I told them, I don't want to know which hospital these six will be. Just give me an idea how many comprehensive stroke centers we need, working with the patients in front of you and the public and the evidence. Then we will sort out where they would be. So I took completely the emotional attachment between these clinicians and the hospitals they were working in versus what London and its population need. And that's the conclusion they come up with based on the evidence. Well, it's such an amazing story that, you know, in order to diffuse uh, innovations, you had to concentrate the care. And what everyone is impressed by was that you were able to persuade 26 out of those 32 hospitals or something like that to stop taking acute stroke patients. And I know it wasn't easy. And I also know that your personal story was part of the secret sauce that made the London Stroke Initiative possible. Uh, so for our listeners, can you tell us a bit of the Era Darcy story? Yeah, well, my story is quite topical at the moment, thanks to your Senate. Uh, I am Armenian, uh, and in 1915, there was the Armenian genocide, which the Senate just voted two days ago acknowledging there was a genocide in Armenia, uh, thanks to your democracy. Uh, and, uh, and so my great-grandmother was a survivor of the genocide, and they migrated on feet, going north, south, east, west, and my great-grandmother went south, and I was born in Iraq, out of all places. And uh, so I did my primary education there, secondary education, and then my parents 
I mean, for us at home was education, 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 the usual motto. So I ended up in Ireland, did my medical school in Ireland and qualified there. And then it was quite typical of Irish trainees to come to the United Kingdom because the NHS had a much larger population, larger numbers, and numbers do make a difference if you are a surgical trainee. So I came across the smaller pond, the Irish Sea, to London and uh, was, a, uh, was a senior resident, if you like, uh, or what we call a lecturer level here. And I did two years here. And, uh, and then somehow or the other, the leader of one hospital was convinced that I'm a worthy of being appointed as a consultant, uh, which you will call an attending year one, year two. And uh, and the rest is history. So I I stayed in London, and the opportunities were great. And uh, uh, and so I progressed. Well, how did you make that passage from being uh, someone uh, you know focused on the micro, minimally invasive surgery, for example, to the big picture, the opposite of micro? Um, uh, you know, how did you go from being a, a chair of surgery to being picked to come up with a plan for London to improve health in 2006? Well, it was a, it's a mindset change because you're absolutely correct. You know, all my training was to focus on an organ or to focus on a single patient. And that's really what the focus is to yield a, you know, a better outcome for the patient that you're serving. Uh, I think if it took, you know, it was really a mindset change if you go up you know, about 3,000 feet and look down, you will appreciate that your contribution is on an individual basis, but actual fact you can make some significant changes in the pathways of care in which you can achieve a significantly better outcome than the contribution you're making to the operative bit on that pathway. And it's not uncommon. I always said, to be fair, you know, there's always someone who spoiled the pathway of care for a patient. So even if I've done the best operation and the patient is discharged home and the community doesn't have the necessary supporting services, that patient is going to come back and that's not going to be the best experience. So coordination of care or seeing the pathway of care through the patient's eyes carries a greater value than seeing the pathway of care through the clinician's eyes because clinicians are focusing on their bit of that pathway. So that's really what brought the whole eight pathways of care in the London Framework for Action, which is that famous report we did in 2006 and published in 2007. We told all the clinicians with the patients and the public, clinicians being doctors and nurses, okay, you might be a colorectal surgeon, which is what I am. Let's look at the whole pathway of care and completely redesign that based on the evidence base and talking to the patients. And they're families and their relatives and that's really how we came up with these new pathways and looking at the not just the evidence but the innovations in the pipeline that may transform these pathways of care so the example we talked about earlier the stroke patient so the conclusion of the hundred people who were with us in that journey for a year when they looked at the stroke data so doc are you telling me that I should tell the ambulance to go to a stroke center rather than the nearest hospital I said yes sir that's the answer to your question. So, you know, patients and the public are fully engaged once they sh we, we as clinicians share that evidence and uh, with them. And they are 
empowered patient is probably one of the most powerful drivers for change. Well, you know, when I think about uh, the the beauty of the idea and the power of the idea, uh, those seem, you know, clear when you're sitting in a conference room. Uh, but out in the real world, hospitals that are realizing that the implication is that they can no longer take stroke patients, uh, they find a way to resist it. And now I often teach the London Stroke case at Harvard Business School, and the people in the audiences and in the classes who are very often healthcare leaders, uh, they are really impressed. And then when I ask, could they do it in their cities, uh, they always say no. So it was logical what you did, but hard. How hard was it? What kind of resistance did you get, and how did you overcome it? It was hard. I mean, I, as I said, I diffused the, the, the initial, you know, being a clinician who works in a hospital, works in London, would appreciate the difficulties to make that change. One is the clinical community is people like me because we we when we work in a hospital we believe that our names are engraved in every brick of that hospital and the hospital should do exactly what it did before and continue to do in the future so dissociating which hospitals will be providing that service was extremely helpful because people then completely you know devolve that emotional relationship they have with the hospital they're working in and looking at the evidence, working with the patients, that was the decision. And the evidence was there, and there's no question doing all your analytics, you came across six centers is what you need. So that was the first part of it. The second part was the difficult, and I may I just say I wasn't involved in that. It was Dame Ruth Carnell, who was the, the senior leader who commissioned services. Then she put up a call to say, okay, every hospital in London needs to bid for one of these comprehensive stroke centers. And based on the quality of what they put in, based on the population, based on the pathways of care, a decision was made how to pick these six hospitals that were that are currently providing stroke services. So we did it in two phases. And that was, uh, that was very powerful. I think the most powerful was empowering the patients. Uh, you know, when you ask, you know, how many times you've asked a doctor you've seen in front of you, tell me which is the best hospital that does that. They never tell you, go up next door, get it done. They always point out, this is the best hospital we work in. So, you know, getting that transparency with the public, with the patients, and the public are the taxpayers in our system. You know, we, we, we do say it's free at the point of need, but it, there's nothing free in this world. The NHS is funded by the taxpayer. So both the public and the patients involved in this in this whole redesign was extremely powerful in changing clinical behaviors and also managerial behaviors because managers are also constantly believing that if you take a service out, it's going to financially destabilize the hospital. Well, that might be true, but if you look at the facts, that is not true because doing small volume, poor quality service is terribly expensive. Well, when I, one of my favorite stories for the implementation, uh, which I'm sure you know, is the story of Charlie Davey, uh, who was the head of the stroke service at the Royal Free at the time. Yeah. And he yeah. has described for me when he got the email that the Royal yeah. Free was not selected 
as a hypertrophy yeah. stroke center, uh, center and uh, the patients would now be going to UCLH, University College of London Hospital. And he describes yeah. how he sat alone in his room for 30 minutes feeling sad and embarrassed and afraid of how he was going to give the news to his colleagues. And then he picked up the phone and he called the director of the stroke service at UCLH and said, congratulations, how can I help? Now, was he the exception or was he the rule among the 26 hospitals that lost out? Well, I would say uh, he would have been the exception. There was some noise and there was also some political noise. Uh, and that's when politics get involved into it. But to be fair, and this is, again, acknowledging the leadership of uh, Dame Ruth Connell, who is the head of the commissioning of the services, you know, she stuck to the line, she stuck to the line that this is based on evidence, this is led by doctors, based on evidence, it's about improving quality of care, and these are the principles in which we're making this change happen. So that noise took about a year or 18 months, and it subsided, and, uh, and since then, I think this has become normal. And if you're going to have a stroke in a city, have it in London. By the way, it's not just stroke, it's myocardial infarct as well. So if you're going to have an MI in a city, have it in London, because you're breast assured that whoever is going to pick you up, an ambulance, will know exactly where to take you, and you know exactly when you arrive through that door, you're going to get the best treatment based on the greatest evidence and all the infrastructure and the expertise available. And that's a good deal. Well, now, to go a little bit deeper, uh, it's logical that concentrating care would lead to better outcomes, but how? I mean, I, I know that more patients receive thrombolytic therapy for stroke, but I think it was only like 14% versus 9% or something like that. It can't account for a 25% decrease in mortality. What do you think led to the you know, tremendous improvement as well as the efficiency? Well, I think we had a more concentration of expertise in each of these centers. Uh, we had less cost because we were running, as I said, 32 substandard provision. I think we calculated the cost pre-service uh, change. I think the whole of London was spending more money on stroke services than the whole of Sweden. And, uh, and we were getting much poorer outcomes. So... Uh, you know, there were significant savings there. In terms of the outcomes, it isn't just the mortality outcomes, by the way. Let's not forget one of the biggest issues in stroke care from a qualitative perspective is morbidity. Uh, so, you know, the ability to leave hospital quicker, your physiotherapy being much more focused, uh, post-stroke rehab was significantly better and more focused and more concentrated. So all of these factors, it wasn't just morbidity, it was the quality of life uh, of stroke survivors who left hospitals in London following the 2007 reconfigurations. One of the things that Charlie Davy had said to me is it wasn't the neurologists like him that made the big difference. It was the nurses and the physical therapists and the occupational therapists and all the other systems that you were alluding to uh, yeah. that that uh, that were hugely important. Well, 10 years later, or really, you know, 13 year, years later, is there anything that you would have done differently if you could go back and do it again? I, I, I 
don't think I would have done anything differently in stroke services. The question I keep asking myself, have we learned from the stroke services doing it in other pathways of care? And uh, I think there's a lot to be learned from that. I think, I think we need a process in which we constantly, when we evaluate a new technology or a new innovation or a new disruption, we need to look at not just the technology, we need to look at the whole redesign of the pathway. If you really want to create the maximum value out of that innovation. Because doing it alone, uh, you know, historically, and this is from Clay Christensen and others, you know, when a new disruption happens, it's always a centralizing driver, as we have seen in stroke services. Let's not forget, you know, after a decade or two, technology could also be a decentralizing factor. So creating stroke networks, uh, is a, another thing which has matured in the last five years or so, where the acute phase could be treated in the comprehensive stroke center, but the rehab could be done at the periphery. There's a huge amount of excitement at the moment in using digital application, or a, what I call a device and an app, in stroke rehab, which a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of people are looking into. So it's always, you know, quality, uh, as I said before, is a moving target. As long as you always remember that fact, then you should always keep up with what's new, what's coming out, and how do we change the whole pathway. Well, let me ask a last question that's along those lines, which is that if you were a generation younger, you were a young clinician uh, leader or non-clinician leader who wanted to make his or her contribution akin to the way you made yours on this particular, uh, you know, initiative, what topic might you pick today? Oh, well, I think in every discipline a young clinician is working in, uh, whether you're a doc or a nurse, uh, there are plenty of opportunities of improvement. And, uh, and you know, I, as I said earlier, quality is a moving target, and you should always question what you are doing in your own practice. And I think you know, take a moment and lift yourself up to 3,000 feet and see what else is happening. Because if you don't, you know, the fragmented care that we provide to our patients is something we have created because our human brain only looks at things in different boxes. Looking at that whole pathway of care through the eyes of the patient will drive creativity in your own mind as a clinician and how to transform that pathway. Well, you are certainly the right person in the right place at the right time, and I think that uh, uh, our hope is is that readers and listeners uh, to the story will find their opportunities as well and, uh, and, and use the same kind of logic and the same kind of courage to stand up to the resistance uh, to do things along these lines which will make care better for patients. So thank you again for your time today uh, and thank you for this work. And I know that uh, uh, there's still more contributions to come and I hope that we'll be able to uh, publicize some of them in NHM Catalyst as well. Thank you. Thank you very much for doing this. Very grateful.